When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. It's Wednesday, May 10th, and that means it's listener question time. That's usually when we do our listener questions on Wednesdays. Isn't that right, Joe Lowry? Yeah, only on May 10th, actually, is when we do it. It's just every year on May <laughs> Once 10th. Once a year. We do like an eight, 80 hour recording session, <laughs> and that gets the us like a lot way. of the way through the year. Uh, one other thing. For listeners, you know, we, we look at each other as we do these shows, even though we're not all in the same place. The last two episodes that Taylor has done the intro for, he has not raised his arms. Taylor, are you okay? Your shoulders are going up, and I can tell there's still movement, but I just wanted to check in. Are, are you doing all right? Yes. It's been a clumsy morning for me. Okay. This doesn't okay. explain why I didn't do it the other day. But, like, I was making eggs. I dropped two eggs on oh, the ground today. Sad. I knocked a, a thing over, like a thing of cheese over. It's just been clumsy, and I feel like if I were to raise the hands above the head, I'm going to punch, like, the recording thing that I have <laughs> here and knock it over, and then that's how we're going to start this session, and I'll look and sound like a laughing stock. So I've avoided that. But, yes, the Play hands safe, can baby. still go up, I promise. I promise they can. Graham Ruthven... I feel like you have an equally troubling scenario if you try to put your hands above your head, given the duvet cover you've got going on. Yeah, I can't, I can't stretch my <laughs> arms above my head. I can kind of do this half stretch here, which I don't know what that really looks like. Kind of looks like me struggling in the gym with a barbell. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, as, that's as far as I can go. Joe, like this is great for an audio podcast. Joe, can you ever fully understand where Graham is? Like there always seem to be like various pillows i never know if that's a monitor that sort of takes up like an eighth of the screen it's always yeah. very confusing you look like you're crammed into the cockpit of a tie fighter it's difficult to place where graham is like if he was to take the duvet off he could be anywhere like he yes. could be like any literally anywhere in the world like in the middle of a busy street in a new york city intersection like graham takes the duvet yeah. off it's fully soundproof right it's fully treated he takes it off and he's just like in the middle of traffic people are yelling at him i could see exactly. that exactly that's where I am. You remember the construction site around my house? I'm just sitting in the construction site, right, and I just find a new right. spot every single day. Has See, the construction like- site been robbed yet is the real question, Graham. Probably, Almost yeah. Almost <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, see, I like that all three of us uh, have recording rooms that have agreeable gray as the background color. So for all we know, we're all actually in the same room the way Paul and Sam used to do with allocation disorder, where they would, it would seem as though they were in very different locations, when in actuality, if they were on the road, they were recording in the same room, but using video, it made it look like they were not. So maybe, maybe just maybe Graham is actually in the background. Of, of See the Joe's thing is, recording space. Yeah, I, am in a, is. I am in a room where behind me there's a giant mural of Kieran Tierney. Of it's course. just within the pillow fort. You know that's hidden, so right. I don't have a agreeable gray <laughs> in this room. My mistake. My mistake. Well, I appreciate you both being here to answer some listener questions. I have a random thing to get us started. I saw a topic on Reddit this morning of uh, who are some footballers who are still playing that you might have thought were retired. So I have three names for you. Uh, Graham, two of them are still playing. One of them has retired. 
Uh, I would like you to pick one of the players that is still playing. Uh, Gigi Buffon, Roque Santa Cruz, or Shinsuke Nakamura? Oh, that's a difficult one. Um, So Gigi Buffon was playing for Parma until fairly recently. I think he's still playing. Is he is he playing? You are correct. So yes. Graham wow. gets one. Joe, that leaves you Roque Santa Cruz or Shinsuke Nakamura. Um, I will say that Roque Santa Cruz is still playing. You are correct. You both Let's get a go. point. Good stuff. Yeah, Gigi Buffon, 45 years old, still playing for Parma in Serie B. Uh, Roque Santa Cruz, 41 years old, playing for Libertad in Paraguay. Wow. Shinsuke Nakamura retired last yeah. year. Yeah, he I thought he retired recently. many years ago. But yeah, only last year did he re- retire at the age of, I believe, 43. He was the one I knew for certain that he'd retired recently because obviously being a Celtic icon, I remember all that, all the, ah, all the yes. tributes and stuff. Well, aren't go, you fancy? Go like run a whiskey business or something like every other former professional athlete. Like go go do a gin <laughs> thing. Like I don't know. Go do something else, man. I thought you were saying that to Graham. I was like, all no, right. No, not Graham. Words early. Graham okay. You did great. Graham nailed it. Graham's got to keep doing this forever. Does yeah, anyone know who the the oldest professional footballer is in the in the world? Oh, it's, I do actually know the answer. Is it is it a, a Japanese player? Because yeah. I feel like I see this on Twitter like every I don't know four months or so, and he's like fifty something, and it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, so it's fifty six year old what uh, Ka- Kazuyoshi Mayura, and last month he made his debut for Portuguese second division team uh, Olivarense. So he is, he's not just still playing, he is signing for new clubs. What? <laughs> that's unreal. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, I genuinely wonder, this is the cynic in me, I wonder if that's like part PR, right? Like, you know, if a club that doesn't otherwise have a ton of relevance would mm-hmm. go out and sign this guy who is sort of a celebrity because of how much he's kept at this thing for so long. I don't know. That's part of it. I've never actually watched him play before, so he could just be still legitimately able to contribute. That just seems really hard like way too hard yeah way too hard that's one who should have his own whiskey company you're 56 i mean you know credit to you still playing credit to graham for knowing all of the trivia uh i feel like graham that means that i have to come to you for our first question uh which is not about aging but that that is amazing have you ever seen this person play graham i heard it on the radio and i am currently in the process of maybe pitching it as a story to someone. So that is why I know an abnormal amount about uh, Miura and the Portuguese second division. All right. Well, I hope that you get to do an interview. I hope you get to go to Portugal and I hope you all get to, I don't know, drink some insure together while you talk about playing. Best friends, best friends, best friends. Let's go. (laughs) In the meantime, we have seven or eight-ish listener questions to get to, one of them specifically for Joe regarding his floating stadium idea. The first one, Graham, I'm coming to you for from Thomas Hill. Professional soccer is well-known for players taking a dive to earn a penalty where little to no actual contact has been made. In the Premier League, if you were going to give an award for the most dramatic penalty performance, who would be on your finalist list and who would win overall for the past season? Uh, Bonus, who wins the most dramatic performance of all time award? Uh, Graham, let's start with this season. Who are some nominees for you? So my dive of the season, my winner, was performed by a Premier League player, but it was mm-hmm. actually in the Carabao Cup. So maybe I'm bending the, the rules a little bit there, but it was eh. it was Pervis Estepinan against Charlton Athletic. It was a complete flop where the Charlton player slipped inside the box and Estepinan uh, saw that opportunity to kind of imply there had been some contact and create the contact and he threw himself to the floor. The problem was, <laughs> I don't know if he kind of misjudged 
you know some people just have had bad hand-eye coordination i'm thinking maybe pervis esteban has that and he kind of judged how close he was to the player he's like a full three or four yards away from the player and it was absolutely hilarious and brighton actually lost that game so maybe there was some sort of form of a karmic retribution but i saw i remember at the time charlton athletic fans creating a a petition to the FA to get Estepanan a, a three-match ban for this dive that was absolutely horrendous. Um, Brian Mbuemo, um he also flopped hard for Brentford against Spurs on Boxing yep. Day, where he anticipated Fraser Forster would make contact with him, and then he kind of pulled his legs away, and Mbuemo did that sort of Ashley Young thing, where he, he loses control of his yep. legs and, and, and goes over. Very, very funny. Not a penalty at all um i've got a couple other nominations but i appreciate this question was quite difficult to research for so i'm not going to take all the answers for everyone but actually the interesting thing about what i found here was in researching this and reminding myself of some of the worst dives of the season is that it sort of struck me that var has maybe Mm -hmm. killed off a lot of diving obviously you still get a few cases but it certainly feels like fewer dives are actually being awarded penalty kicks so obviously you're still getting some attempts Mm. but i seem to remember there being more dives than there are now is that just me no i think i think you're dead on i think because we used to get dives that would be given as penalties and then that sort of adds to the injustice because it's a dive and then it's also this clear-cut goal scoring opportunity now and the referee got it wrong and there's no recourse now you know var is going to have a look and very likely overturn if there isn't really any contact and so i think what you end up getting are ones like the Mbamba one, one like uh, Cody Gakpo, where it's just it's leaving the leg out, and so you are you are the one making the contact happen. But mm. fewer of those egregious, there's no contact at all, and they go rolling forty yards and then uh, act like they've been shot at the same time. I think yeah, VAR has sort of wound that up a little bit, but I did have Mbwemo as my nominee, Graham, in that uh, Brentford game versus Spurs, because it's he goes around Forster, and it's one of those where maybe it would have gone out of bounds. Like, he does take that touch, and then he assumes there will be contact, and there is not. But I think there's a pretty good chance he could have gotten to that ball, which would have meant he had a tap-in for an open goal. Instead, he gets a yellow. He also, in trying to sell the dive... uh Kicks Fraser Forster right in the nuts, uh, which is probably not <laughs> Fraser Forster's favorite thing, that it was a dive and also a lot of physical pain. So I think that one adds to the comedy value of the dive for me. Cody Gakpo was another one on my short list for, uh, in Liverpool versus Manchester City. He does one of those, leaves the leg out, tries to engage that contact and goes down. Uh, but it, it, it's pretty clear. It's pretty obvious. And I think he was, if not booked right away, at the very least, just told to get up mm. and keep playing. So I would share your idea that it gets sort of uh people get away with it uh far less frequently joe what did you find in your research yeah so i looked up all the ones you guys were talking about as you described them and they're both hilarious and i think they're both better than mine i i had a really hard time with this question honestly i don't pay attention to dives like Mm -hmm. a, a lot of times i watch games that aren't live and so i'm skipping through like Stuff like this. Like, I'll see a moment happen and obviously register that that's a dive. And then my brain sort of just filters it out because I guess you watch enough soccer in your lifetime and you stop caring about that stuff. It's, it's always for me when I have a conversation with a friend who's not a soccer person or like an acquaintance, somebody I've just met, they bring up flopping first. Like that's always the thing about soccer. And I think for me, I had to sort of as an American fight through that 
to start enjoying the game. And so I've just like ditched all of those see, filters. Go ahead, Graham. See, the, th- the thing is, and I fully recognize this might be the most unpopular of unpopular opinions that I hold. I like diving. I wrote, I wrote a piece for Vice on that like a number of years ago. I can appreciate a good dive. So yeah. Yeah, I don't and, know what and, that says about me, but, uh, and, and my, my moral and my moral fiber. <laughs> but yeah, I like diving. I always have. It's, my, it's entertaining. My view on on diving, especially in the box, is that it's a symptom of the rules of soccer being bad. Like, if you're going to complain about diving, you shouldn't be complaining about diving. You should be be complaining about the penalty kick, right? It's that the fact that you can try to draw contact 18 yards from goal where you're not even going to get a shot off. And if you do get a shot off, it's going to be an extremely low value shot. The fact that that can be rewarded in terms of a penalty that gives you like a 74% chance to score it, it doesn't make any sense. And so you are incentivized to dive. And so in some ways, Graham, I agree with you. Like I see a dive and I think that is the smart thing mm-hmm. to do in that moment. If there is any contact, like what is the incentive for you not to go down? Now there are these extreme cases and the Embuemo one is hilarious. I, I, I was watching it back and he is like not even close to the goalkeeper. And the, the Purvis one is also really good. The one that I had is a, a recent one. It's Darwin Nunez dive versus Fulham. This was in a one no win for Fulham. It's 39 minutes into the game that Salah scores the penalty that comes from Nunez drawing a foul, if you want to call it that, from Fulham's Issa Diop. It's, it's pretty bad. The ball rolling towards Diop. Nunez is, is chasing. Diop goes to pass. And Darwin just kind of gets a toe on it first. So Diop then whiffs. Like, he's, he's winding up to kick this ball. And he whiffs because the ball was moved all of a sudden. And then Nunez just jumps right into his leg and falls down at the same time. There's almost no contact. It is another ridiculous example. Marco Silva, Fulham's manager, was not happy about this. Uh, a couple others that I found were all Bruno Fernandes related, like him, I think also in a cup <laughs> game, like just chucking himself into a defender as a free kick is taken. He's in like that line of players. He's not serving the ball in. For some reason, they've got him like trying to crash the box. I don't know whose who's idea that was, but he just runs into a guy that's like twice his size and falls down and the referee falls for it and they get another free kick closer to goal. It's It's those kinds of moments. But I just keep coming back to this idea that it's probably not always a fair punishment for some of these crimes or you know you're incentivized to go out and do stupid stuff like this because of how warped some of these rules are uh so one thing that i found because I, I i think it has gotten harder to find very good examples of diving uh courtesy of reddit uh we all know the ballon d'or reddit i believe around 2017 established the uh f-a-l-l-o-n d apostrophe f-l-o-o-r the fallon de floor uh for the best slash worst dive of the year uh so that is where i found some of mine for the uh for the last year for all time i think there are two main candidates for me both of which can be found on that uh on that reddit nominations list uh, the Hama, or no, excuse me, the Neymar foul yep. and roll 40 yards. Yep, uh, that's, that's pretty egregious. And then in 2017, Colombia versus uh, Korea, Hamas Rodriguez goes to pick up a Korean player who is down and Hamas, I think, thinks is faking it. The Korean player sort of does the like, get off me gesture, at which point Hamas acts as though he has been shot in the face and falls down and rolls around. There is zero contact there. And I think that is one that players will still attempt is feigning that there's been contact or some sort of punch. We saw that yesterday in the, uh, in the Champions League semifinal with Danny Carvajal going down as though he'd been hit in the face. I think players will still try to get away with that one more so than diving. So Hamas, uh, pretending to be shot and yeah. Neymar rolling like, out of the stadium would be two pretty egregious ones in my mind. Rivaldo surely has to be oh, in the fall that's the floor the worst one. Hall Never mind. Graham wins. Graham well. wins. Yep. 2002 what is World this Cup. One? Oh, it's the worst I, one in history. It's the yeah, most, and, and the player gets a red card for it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Taylor, what game is it? Is it the semi-final against Turkey? I believe I can't so. Quite... Yeah, it's a 2002 World yeah. Cup knockout game. Brazil involved. Can't remember who the other team is, but Rivaldo's oh, about to take bad. a corner. It's, it's Brazil Turkey for sure. This is yeah. bad. Yeah, this yeah. Is really Rivaldo's bad. about to take a corner, and the ball gets played to him. Now the ball does technically technically strike him. So yeah. Yeah. the guy um, kicks it right at him. I'm watching it right now. The guy kicks it right at him for sure. Like that's that's kick, a problem. Kicks it. Kicks it can, can we clarify? Kicks or passes, Joe? No. It, to me, it looks like he's. That a professional soccer player is not passing the ball like that to a player yeah, that's like so ten yards from him. Okay. He does kick it at him, but it doesn't hit him in the face. No. Which is what Rivaldo <laughs> goes down holding, implying that it's been struck in the face, and the player, whoever it was, I can't remember, gets a red card. Yes. And that that's a pretty big moment in a in a knockout World Cup game. And I think that was when like Brazil were taking their time. It was a little bit of housery, and I think the ball was right there, and Rivaldo yeah. was like not getting it, or maybe had let another ball come onto the pitch because you can't play two at once. Either way, the players just basically being like, "Here's your ball, let's get on with it." And instead, Rivaldo goes down. That is that is the worst one I think I can think of. Joe, unless you have any other yeah. uh, nominations, we need to hear. I'm sure I you don't, do. but I think I will give my worst to Neymar rather than this Rivaldo thing. Uh, like okay. well, I've watched it a bunch of times. I think that might be a red card, regardless of what the the simulation is now it is an incredible bit of acting from Rivaldo like the ball hits him I think in his arm as he's like sort of you know over by the corner flag and it, it doesn't hit him in the face and he sells it of course but the Neymar thing is is also crazy I guess to be fair though in the Neymar situation Serbia players come come in and, and he does get tackled right like mm-hmm. there's contact it's just the embellishment after so maybe they're the same uh, I just also love with the Neymar one that the U.S. played Brazil in a friendly, like maybe a month or two after the World Cup. And there's this clip of DeAndre Yedlin in this match after Neymar's on the ground for, for some reason. Yedlin goes over to the referee who, who's having a talking to with him and asks him straight up, like, did you watch Neymar at the World Cup? Like, did you watch the World Cup? And that's a, that was a, a pretty fun viral social media moment. But these are both really, really bad. That Neymar it, one, man, it, it's just so frustrating because he does get kicked a lot, or at least he, he used to. He still probably does. He yeah, just he plays does. less. Uh, but it, it was one of those situations in which he definitely would get kicked all the time and then I think would go to ground to make clear that he got the call. It just then would maybe go over the top with it. So instead of it being like, wow, this guy gets kicked so much, he's so flashy on the ball, it became like, oh, there he goes, diving again, even after he would get fully kicked or fully booted or fully tackled aggressively and there was contact it's the way he would try to sell it that i think put it over the top into a little bit of gamesmanship yeah does anyone remember the swansea city ball boy getting ed and hazard sent off Did- is oh. that for not getting the ball back and then yeah, going so about down 10 years yeah. ago so he's he's clearly been told you know don't give chelsea the ball back that quickly he takes his time hazard goes over to him and look hazard um is not uh, you know, innocent in this. He kind of kicks the ball from underneath the ball boy, um, but the ball boy then goes down like he's been shot. Hazard gets sent off. The ball boy is then pretending he needs like medical treatment, and then yeah. five minutes later is giving it to the Chelsea fans at the Liberty <laughs> Stadium. Oh. Absolutely insane scenes. I'll always remember that incident. <laughs> the the moment where the the player like the camera pans to the ball boy. And his expression is just like the most quintessential British 60 year old man. Like it, it's, I can't fully articulate it because I'm not a 60 year old British man, but you've seen this expression on the face of like every soccer fan ever. Go watch this clip. It is, it's so good. It's not dissimilar from Busquets and Pedro, like peeking through their fingers to oh, see if a card has been yeah. given. Like the, the ball boy definitely sells it. Every couple of years you get one of those. 
incidents when a ball boy either won't give the ball back or like throws it way too hard at an, uh, at an opposition player. And there's always a flash where the player definitely wants to do something and then remembers <laughs> that it's a child and they yeah. can't. But there's that one moment when the player's like, oh, okay, right. I got to calm down. I got to deescalate. And, and sometimes they don't. And then sometimes Aiden Hazard well, gets was, sent off as that a was result. The thing, that was the thing about the Swansea ball boy. From memory, I haven't seen the clip recently, but he's maybe like a slightly older ball boy yeah, as is. well. He is. So Eden Hazard is like, it was, is it this was just fair Gary game? Monk. Was, that's who it was. <laughs> can I? Can I? <laughs> All right. Um, I, I love this question. J- lovely work, gentlemen, with your answers. Some good researching there. We're going to take a quick break. Back with more listener questions in just a second. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. Uh, Next question comes from Richard Rolson. Can you explain why Spurs would owe Bayern Munich 10 million pounds if they were to hire Julian Nagelsmann, despite him being sacked in March by the Bundesliga club? Do clubs often retain the rights to a manager after they've been relieved of their duties? Or is this, this a unique situation? I will say this was news to me. I had not heard of this. I had to do a good amount of digging to figure out roughly, I think, what had happened. Uh, but I will say up front that clubs, as far as I know, do not retain the rights to managers after they've been relieved of their duties. I believe that would be a violation of uh, workers' rights clauses, and that's how we ended up getting the Bosman ruling. So with the, all that said, Joe, how is yeah. it possible that uh, if Spurs were to sign Nagelsmann, they would owe Bayern Munich money? Yeah, so I guess one party in this Nagelsmann-Bayern situation has been relieved of their duties, but the other party has not. And that that is maybe sort of the distinction that I would draw here. Nagelsmann is no longer coaching the team day-to-day, so his duties are gone. Like, he's not involved with the, with the club. But Bayern Munich still have a duty to him in that they're still paying out his contract. They have not agreed, as far as I can tell, on any sort of settlement that would release Nagelsmann from his contract, some sort of, you know, larger number that's mm-hmm. paid out over a period of time, but essentially says, like, this is a settlement. That hasn't happened yet. So I think, Richard, maybe a better way to think about this situation is, is if, is as if Nagelsmann was a player who was under contract for another couple of seasons or whatever that number is. Usually when we see transfers happen, that transfer fee is to break a contract. So a player, or in this case, a coach, if they're under contract, you know, their new club, the club that wants them would have to pay some number to their current club, and that gets them out of their contract with the current club and allows them to then get into a new contract with the new club. So basically, Nagelsmann is in that situation, even though he's no longer actively involved in the day-to-day. He's still under contract, as far as we can tell, with Bayern Munich, which means that a club would come in and have to pay some figure. Now, I think the £10 million figure is just like a reported number. I I would assume that's just what Bayern Munich want in this situation. It's not like... Mm -hmm. A clause, maybe there is a release clause, though, and we see that on the player side. I don't know what that looks like. I would imagine they would have set the release clause higher, though, because they paid RB Leipzig 
like a bunch of money way back in the day. I think, you know, maybe more than double this figure. They paid RB Leipzig a ton of money to, to do the same thing. Like Bayern Munich broke his contract with Leipzig and they paid a figure to be allowed to do that. And then he has set a new contract with Bayern. Now, essentially, Bayern are passing that luxury on to the next person. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if there was some form of clause that Bayern Munich have that would cover the eventuality of him being dismissed from his role and then that being his release clause because it's very rare for a manager to be paid out the full amount of their contract. So I go back to Jose Mourinho being sacked by Tottenham Hotspur. I think he had a long time still to go on his on his contract. Or David Moyes being sacked by Manchester United. I think he had something like seven years to go on his contract. And so Manchester United didn't pay out the full seven years of his contract. They gave they negotiated a settlement with him that was that was satisfactory to him. So it wouldn't surprise me if there's some form of clause in in Bayern Munich's agreement with Nagelsmann that would cover him being sacked. And then a lot of this has to do with just the way we report things, right? The way stories get reported, the the ease of writing a headline. It's easier to say Bayern have sacked Julian Nagelsmann than the reality, right. which is Julian Nagelsmann has been placed on gardening leave because then you have to look up what gardening leave is. And yeah, it's effectively There's not no firing a player, but saying you don't need to come into the office anymore. They uh Milton in the in office space. They they Miltoned him. They basically put him in a cubicle in the basement and said, "You still work here. You just have no responsibilities. But if anybody else wants you, uh, they have to negotiate with us." Uh, so that is how I believe uh, things yeah. would go down, uh, depending on where Nagelsmann uh, ends up, be it Chelsea or Spurs or elsewhere. Yeah, and it's 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 smart if you get the sense that the manager you have sacked or placed on gardening leave whatever you want to call it if you get the sense that that manager is going to be going to be of interest to other clubs is going to certainly be of interest to rich clubs like Chelsea and Spurs who are going to be able to pay that amount then it it makes sense to not pay out the settlement and kind of bank on a club coming in for him because then obviously you get a bit you get a bit money for for the the bad decision that you have made certainly in the case of Bayern Munich uh Thank you all for your answers there. Thank you, Richard, for that question. Next one, Graham, I'm coming to you for this one, though it feels like a Joe question, but we're going to let Joe bring it home here. Joe's going to be the anchor to Elliot Morell's question. With Leeds likely to go down, hurtful, what do we think uh, is the best (laughs) path forward for the three USMNT players? Stay with Leeds in the championship or force a move elsewhere? Similarly, Kevin Tolley said, being a USMNT fan, I think Adams and Norma Kenny would improve almost any team they stepped into. I was wondering if that's true would the current top five teams in the Premier League want one or both of them and if so would they improve that team would the styles of those teams even fit their skill sets Graham how say you do you want me to start with the first question yeah. first mm-hmm. or do you want me to do player by player what, what, what do you want let's to go do? player by player let's start with Weston McKinney okay so I think McKinney will have the most options this summer because obviously he's only on loan at Leeds and if they get relegated I'd imagine he won't be sticking around he'll be going back to Juventus but it seems they see him as an asset they can sell they can sell to, to ease some of their financial worries Allegri's team Juventus have actually kind of picked up a little bit after McKinney's left I don't know if that's related but they seem to have settled on this midfield three of Locatelli, Fagioli and Rabio. Of course, you've got Paul Pogba to come back into that that unit as well when he is fit. I don't know if that will ever happen. But nonetheless, the point I'm trying to get to is McKinney's quite a bit down the pecking order event, particularly if they're not playing a midfield four where he was playing on kind of a, in a wide role in the first half of the season. 
Um, so I kind of expect him to be on his way out of Juventus this summer. They have financial worries, which selling him would ease. There doesn't seem to be a lot of chat about where he could end up at the moment, but it wouldn't surprise me if a Bundesliga club came in for him, for example. So obviously he broke through at, uh, or, or in Europe, he broke through at, at Schalke. And I feel like the kind of fast pace and the physicality of the Bundesliga suits him well. In terms of, would he improve a top five team, um, as Kevin's question put it? I've got mixed thoughts on this. I, I have previously said I thought Wes McKenney would be a good addition for a top-level Premier League team. He'd been linked with Arsenal and Tottenham in the past. My issue with McKenney is I'm not sure he's good enough in possession. Yep to play for certainly the kind of top level team and so I I, I used to think Spurs would be a, a good fit for McKinney and they were linked with him and the way that they played with charging the box with runs but now I'm looking at Nagelsmann maybe coming into Spurs and that maybe that not being the greatest fit for him um, I do think another Leeds player would be a good fit yep. for Nagelsmann Tottenham team but I'll come on to that a little bit later. Uh, yeah, I would agree with pretty much all of that. Uh, with the Bundesliga shout, I had McKinney going to Dortmund, especially if they lose a few players this summer. That felt like one that could make them better. If you wanted to keep him in the Premier League, West Ham feels like one. If they lose Declan Rice or if Suchek continues to age, which he will because we all do, uh, may- maybe that's one where he could go in and-, and be a deputy early but then become a starter as things went on. I agree with you about Weston McKinney, Graham, that I think in possession he would be a problem for some clubs. I think about – I read an article, a good piece in The Athletic about Artur at Liverpool and, and why that did not work out, why that went south. And there's a number of different factors, but one of them is basically when he comes in in his first couple training ses- sessions, he's evaluated and, and the determination is essentially he does everything way too slowly. And if we want him to function in our midfield, he has to play way faster, read things more quickly, take fewer touches. And I don't think McKenney, I think he could learn that, but I don't think that's a skill set coming in of his. And I think that probably applies to Liverpool, to Man City, even to like Manchester United. Like I think there's plenty of midfielders at that club that already maybe take too much time or, or have a heavy touch. So I'm not sure he yeah. makes them all that much better. I think Spurs is a is a possible shout there. But uh, I, I agree with most of what you said on Weston McKinney. Related to this is I, I kind of feel like I, I think of Weston McKinney in a different way to the two of you do. Um, so you, you don't you don't love him. We think of him the way I, you think of Kieran Tierney. <laughs> I do really like Wesley McKinney, mm, but that's not love. <laughs> it's close, <laughs> close enough. Is it? It's as much as you're gonna that's, get. That's from all Graham does. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> yeah, um, it kind of reminds me. And hold hold up here before you jump in on this analogy, right? Whoa, it kind of reminds whoa. me. Oh, great. Right, sorry. It kind of reminds me of the discussion. I don't, what, I don't even know what you've said, but I'm mad. It kind of reminds me of the discussion that people used to have around Marouane Fellaini, right? Let me finish this thought. So Marouane Fellaini, when he arrives to Manchester United, is, oh, this guy is a deep is a, is a deep-lying holding midfielder. He's going to start moves from deep. And he eventually was, people found out that he's too slow in the ball, not good enough possession. And actually, where Fellaini really started to make headway for Manchester United is when they moved him into that attacking position. He was essentially an auxiliary attacker. You charge the box with him, you get him on the end of crosses, and he's basically an agent of chaos. Whenever I've, and I appreciate it, I haven't watched as much of Wes McKenney as you guys have, but whenever I've seen Wes McKenney, whenever I've seen him play well, that is the role that that he's playing. So that kind of informs, I'm looking at top five, top six teams that would use a player like that, and I'm kind of struggling a little bit. Yeah. No, I, I think there's lots of that that I agree with, Graham. The issue with 
with McKenney and Adams and Aaron's, all these players, is that they're they're not world class, right? They're good at a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. but they're not complete players. That's why none of us are saying like, oh, they should go to Manchester City or oh, they should go here. They're they're not good enough for that stuff, right? They're good players and they can contribute to a Champions League caliber team. I think probably for all of them, in different ways and in, in different levels, but they're not good enough to be this player that you can say like, oh, this this would make any club in the world better or this would make any style of team better. Weston McKinney, I think, could thrive as sort of like a, a second forward or a box-arriving attacking midfielder. But to make that work in a team, you need to have really goal-dangerous wingers. You need to have creative presences deeper down the field. Like, it only works for specific moments, right? For the U.S., I don't know that that really works because they need his ball winning in midfield. The wingers are are good, but not consistently goal-dangerous. And so... I'm not sure that they can be the ones that are providing all the attacking. It, there, there's a lot of difficulties here, right? But ultimately, I, I agree with a lot of the McKinney analysis. I think he probably plays a bit quicker than either of you guys are giving him credit for. I don't think he's always he the most precise plays quicker on the ball. Than, than Mario and Fellini. That was a yeah, heavy-handed like, analogy, but the principle of it was there. And I'm not sure that I would I would say he doesn't fit at Liverpool because he doesn't play fast enough. Like I think of McKinney as a super chaotic and aggressive forward-thinking player. But I, I can see the argument that he doesn't fit at a top-level team because he's not technical enough. Like I can buy that. I think he is a technical player, and I think he would adapt well to a lot of different teams, but Again, his ceiling is, is a bit lower. So I don't, we've kind of done a bit on McKenney. I was thinking Inter because their midfield is super old. Chalanoglu's 29, Mkhitaryan's <laughs> 34, and Brozovic is 30. They play with three central midfielders. I think McKenney would do a really good job as one of those number eights. He's not as, as tidy on the ball as the other players that Inzaghi has typically relied on in those spots. But I do like that idea. In terms of Tyler Adams, I think you know he doesn't really fit the style of a super possession-heavy team. So... City's out of the realm of possibility for any of these guys, like I said already. I don't think he's a great option for Arsenal with how Arteta wants to play either. Newcastle, I could see him going there, but it would be as a depth option behind mm. Bruno Gamarash because he's really, really good and can do a bit more, I think, in possession. I think Manchester United could use midfield depth, but I think they should be aiming higher than Tyler Adams or Weston McKennie, personally. And Taylor, as a Man United fan, I think, I think that's probably what you should hope for. And Liverpool, like... I just don't really see it for Tyler Adams. So for him, he's been linked to AC Milan recently. And I, I would really like that. The idea is that he's sort of a delayed Frank Kessie replacement. I think going to be an every game guy for a team that doesn't exclusively press or do crazy stuff would probably be good for him. And, and Milan, in some ways, I think could be a good option. Dortmund as well yeah. was on my list. These are just clubs that are like a tier down from the best of the best, but can still use players and, and don't all the way have like a really concrete style. And so for McKenney and, and, and Adams, at least Aronson, I'd have sort of a tier down lower than these two. But like for those two players, I think they can, they can go and contribute to a Champions League club of do, that sort of caliber. Do we think Tyler Adams is likely to get a move this summer? Because, yeah, yeah. Cause he's been one of the few Leeds players to come out of this season with any sort of credit. And obviously he's better than the English championship, but Leeds probably want him to stick around. The oh. problem is he's got four years left on his contract. And I was reading an article that said the the parachute payments that Leeds would receive if they get relegated means that they probably aren't going to have to sell any players for next season. Yeah. So it could be... If a club wants Tyler Adams, they're going to have to really want Tyler Adams this summer to get him out of Leeds. And that's an issue for him. Yeah, yeah especially if, if Tyler Adams... Yeah. If Tyler Adams is in the championship next year, like that's a disaster for his career. Like it, I'm not saying it's not something he can come back from, and I think he would still do well. But like that's that's a ridiculous 
concept for someone who was playing for RB Leipzig in Champions League semifinals a few years ago, and is still you know pretty much at the same level that he's been. That that would not be a good thing. It would do, not. Do you have? Do you have a different? Sorry to jump in, Taylor. Um, and apologies for moving us on too quickly. But do you think differently about Brendan Aronson he in the championship? <laughs> he definitely does. Yeah, I'll tell yeah. you that right now. <laughs> I don't. I think I'd be more fine with. I still wouldn't prefer it. Like I, I would rather the U.S.'s top twenty guys not be playing in a second division anywhere. I would rather them be testing themselves at the highest level possible. The thing with Aronson is he hasn't had a, an especially productive season, right? Like he hasn't been a guy that comes into the Premier League and you're like, oh yeah, this guy has it. Like this guy's ready to compete, even at a team that's down closer to the bottom. Like he's not a guaranteed starter. I, I don't have a lot of clarity on the on where Aronson stock stands after a season that, that has been relatively down. My my wish for Aronson is that he goes to a team that doesn't just like press and do crazy stuff all the time. He's gone from the union who play that way to RB Salzburg, who play that way to Leeds United, who play that way. And I think it's made him a pretty one-dimensional player. Like I was talking with John Tolkien uh, maybe a month or two ago now, and basically asked him as a guy who's developed in the Red Bull system, do you feel like you've missed out on different parts of your game? Like that, that parts of your game have been sacrificed. And he said, yes, like he thinks about that stuff. Aronson's that to the max right now. He's never had a chance outside of U.S. men's national team appearances to really diversify his skill set. It might be too late at this point. I, I, it honestly might be too late. But my wish for Aronson is, is to go to a team that plays differently. That could be a Premier League team. I'd prefer him not to be in the championship. My fun thought would be Eintracht Frankfurt because that's where Paxton Aronson is. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see the brothers playing together in the Bundesliga. That would be very fun. Um, but I am, Taylor, like, like you're uh, quick to point out a lot of times, I am down on Aronson relative to others. So I'm, I'm pretty curious about what you have to say about his future. I wouldn't hate if he stayed at Leeds. But, like, stay with them. They go down. He becomes a key player, plays every single game. Uh, they get promoted back up. He's a club legend. Boom. Uh, we're all very happy. But no, I, I share your, your concerns about the, the style of play or the consistency of that style of play and maybe needing to diversify a little bit. I think for, as you said, Graham, McKinney on loan, he goes back to Juve. That's a different animal. For Adams and Aronson, I feel like we're looking at potential loans for both of them. Adams, because he's been injured for this, chunk of the season uh, in which Leeds have been very, very poor and might get relegated. I don't know how many clubs are going to look at him and see all of the positives from before that. I think there's a chance that he gets painted with the brush of he's on a bad Leeds team that got relegated. Maybe he's not actually that strong of a player. I think if you watch tape of him, you'll see otherwise. But I I think he does find himself in a really awkward slash difficult position and that's where i think maybe alone near the end of the window is possible for him and maybe for brendan aronson as well i would whatever jesse marsh is i'm (laughs) joking but not really not really jesse marsh is getting a job somewhere and he seems to still be on the radar of several clubs then maybe he comes in for him i think maybe i think the issue in descending order of mckinney adams aronson is essentially the amount of money that will be required to get them to move because i think Juve definitely see McKinney as an asset, maybe less so after this time with Leeds, but they're going to want a good a good transfer fee, and there's not as many clubs that are going to be able to afford that for a player that is somewhat of a risk, and I think the same goes for Adams as well. So it's which clubs can sort of afford to take a minimal risk or take a player on loan. I look at Tyler Adams and I wonder if maybe like Leicester with their rebuild, if they stay up, if that's a place where he could go for a season and be a key player for them, maybe West Ham for him or McKinney, as I mentioned previously, Uh, even Spurs for, for Tyler Adams as a loan depth option. And then we see what he can do. I think there's options there, but I think all three of them, none of them are very like 
slam dunk, they're going to be with a top five team next season. I think I would love for them to be, but I don't think that's where they are right now. Uh, So that's kind of how I see this one, as depressing as it may be. Yeah, I would agree. I think with Tyler Adams, I remember back at the start of the season, Joe of the three of us was maybe the one that wasn't so keen on Tyler Adams going to Leeds. And Joe, you might have been right. This maybe wasn't the best career move. It was a gamble. I think I accepted it was a gamble at the time. That gamble has has kind of backfired, it seems, for him. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> agreed then, agreed now. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, let's take a break. Let's let, let's let me be sad for a moment. And we'll come back to round this out with a few more questions. Back soon. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, welcome back. This question comes from Tyler Cox, and it is yet another interesting one. Now that the season is mostly over, how did the World Cup in the middle of the season affect things in the global soccer world? Graham, I will come to you for this one first, but I will say, for me, I think it might be a little premature on this question. I really appreciate the question, and I'm glad it got us the ball rolling, but I don't. I yeah. think people have been so preoccupied with the end of the season with so many games happening in quick succession that I think there hasn't really been the time to digest the season itself, first of all, but the season in relation to the World Cup. So I do think this summer we're going to see pieces about like which players ran less distance after the World Cup or weren't as switched on or had downturns in form or which players that might have been up for it trying to cement a spot in the World Cup didn't really have that sort of strong finish to the season if there had been a summer World Cup. I think we haven't yeah. really had the opportunity for some of those arguments to develop. I think there are still a few th- consequences we've seen, uh, most of them negative in my opinion. But I think <laughs> overall, I'm going to lay the foundation of it might be too early right now to know for sure. 
Yeah, if you're the sort of person who is conducting a study or if you're an organization that is conducting a study, this is kind of, we're into the last month of the season, this is the month where you would theoretically see the biggest drop-off, if there is going to be a drop-off in energy levels or certain actions per 90 minutes or injuries, an increase in injuries. This is the month you would theoretically see it, so it it wouldn't really make sense to close your study before this month i think for starters it's made this season feel like the longest season in the history of the yes, world yep. cristiano ronaldo played for manchester united this season Can't the conte tuchel the conte tuchel handshake fight was this season how how is that i cannot believe yep. that that happened this season that definitely feels like at least two seasons ago um, I feel like the knockout rounds of the Champions League, I, I might have mentioned this last week, I feel like the, the knockout rounds of the Champions League have, have suffered from some sort of emotional drop-off. And I say emotional because I can't really chart anything tangible or physical at, the, at this time because we don't have the, the data, really. But it feels like there hasn't been the same level of intensity and certainly not the same level of chaos that we've seen in recent seasons. And there's just so much... There's there's so much overlap between the players in the World Cup and the latter rounds of the Champions League that I just wonder if that's down to a mental fatigue as much as a, a physical fatigue. Yeah, I think the the World Cup being in the middle of the season has also made it tougher for clubs with smaller squads or managers who only trust a certain number of players, as has been the case with, I'm going to use Manchester United and Barcelona, who don't necessarily have small squads, but they have managers, as I say, who only trust a small group of players. And we've seen a massive drop-off from Barcelona and Manchester United, or we've seen a a great deal of inconsistency from them in in the second half of the season. And generally, I just feel like everyone's a bit more knackered than they are usually at this stage of the season. I mean, Manchester United don't have a midweek game this week that's the first time in 2023 that that has happened. That's that's not very healthy at all. So I do expect when the studies come out, when there's more data, there will be more to chew on. But as you say, Taylor, it's a little bit premature right now. Yeah, and, and Graham, you mentioned their midweek games. For me, and a lot of my answer to this question is subjective because there's not a ton of data out there on how this has actually impacted things. And I do have one point on that, but I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. For me, you mentioned midweek games. Fixture congestion has been a, a real factor this year, not just on on the player side, but I also kind of think on the narrative side as well. And this is, this is subjective, but I, I think the Winter World Cup has made big games less exciting because of the schedule. Right? And the one that I think about for this specifically is Arsenal Man City, which wasn't held on a weekend. It wasn't held on a Saturday. It wasn't held on a Sunday. It was held in the middle of the week. Like, it was a weeknight local. It was a weekday afternoon for us here in the United States. Like, I think you lose out and some of these these moments have been not maximized because of the amount of games that they've had to squeeze into such a short amount of time. You you run the risk with the Winter World Cup of having these things, the impact of these things, you know, not fully thought out and not fully maximized. Yeah. So that's that's one part of this. The other fact that I found and one subjective thing, I guess, first and then and then the fact is I felt like it made the World Cup less relevant having the World Cup in the middle of the season. If we're yeah. talking about the global soccer world. We will remember Argentina's win for a long time because of Lionel Messi. But I don't know that I will remember a ton about this World Cup going forward. It's always hard to remember World Cup stuff because it happened you know, so infrequently. But I think having it in the middle of the season where you blink and sort of on one side, it's Ronaldo drama with Manchester United and Saudi Arabia. And on the other side, we're right back into the thick of the league season, which does dominate the narrative because it's around for longer. I think that is one way that things have been impacted. And then on the player side in terms of injuries, 
really the study that I found, it was done by The Athletic through 28 game weeks, I believe, in the Premier League season. So this was through the start of April, I believe. The Athletic found that there were 12% more soft tissue injuries from the start of the Premier League season through the end of March than the average over the previous four seasons. So it's a really small sample size. It's one league as well, and only really one kind of injury. So maybe like more than a grain of salt on this one, but that was what they found. And I do think there's probably something to the fact of more games means more injuries. We see this all the time, and the World Cup added more games in the middle of the season. I do think there's one very interesting like player who's an outlier here. Uh, I would say the most dominant player in this campaign, a player who has had injury issues in the past that kept him out for long periods of time, who has not had them this season, is Erling Holland. And I do wonder if missing a, like basically getting a month to rest, I think he said, I sat at home, got really mad that I wasn't playing in a World Cup and scoring goals, and recharged my batteries. Sat in his ice bath. <laughs> exactly. I wonder, I do wonder if, if certain players, uh, Martin Odegaard would be another one. We're just talking about Norway now, apparently. But I, I do wonder if players missing out on the World Cup in the middle of the season, it gave them a month-long break, and I tried to find some some research on this because I don't know what happened exactly. But I don't know if players like Erling Holland, when he says he watched from home, I don't know if he means he went back to Norway hmm. or if that means he was still living in Manchester and there was like unofficial training. Because if that's the case, we've been wondering how it is that Erling Holland was able to be blended into this squad so quickly, whereas it usually takes a year for Man City players to get on board. I wonder if having a month of just nobody around and probably having extra... Sessions, even if it's not like full training sessions in Manchester, but I'm going to assume there was more dialogue with coaches because yeah. he had the time. So that happened. Um, I remember a Sky Sports. Sky went and visited Erling Haaland when the World Cup was on and they, they did like an advert with him, but they also had like a sit down interview. I believe he'd gone back to Norway. I believe he'd gone to Barcelona. I think he maybe has a place in Barcelona or he's maybe his dad has a place in Barcelona, I think. Um, so he had had some time off. He'd been on holiday, but yeah, I think for a solid two weeks at least he was at the Etihad campus just preparing for it for all his mates to get back so I think there's some players who probably got that extra rest and got a little more training and I think looked the better for it I think there are players who either are just fatigued from the number of games maybe like from the letdown of playing in a world cup or losing a final or whatever it may be and I think there's also the idea that players, when there's a World Cup looming, are going to play the best they possibly can and be scratching and clawing and fighting for every single thing they can to cement their place in a team. And when you don't have a World Cup for another four years, we've talked about this with our U.S. coverage, that it sort of felt like, eh, we got time to figure things out. And I wouldn't be surprised if players kind of felt the same, that like, mm. eh, we're going to finish 10th this season, the World Cup's already happened... No, well, like I, I absolutely think there are players that maybe just haven't been as locked in as they would be otherwise. Uh, Joe, go ahead. Yeah, the last thing I was going to add on this, because I, I know we've, we've kind of covered a lot of ground, yeah. is I do think it's possible that having a Winter World Cup and giving players something of a break over the summer, although FIFA will see to that, that that break is shortened in no time with the expanded Club World Cup. I think there's a possibility that injuries won't be as high in this World Cup year relative to other World Cup years. Because players are already in season, they're already fit, and it's not a matter of them finishing the club season, and on the European side, finishing the club season, taking a little bit of time off, then trying to ramp back up to full fitness outside of their standard club environment, then maybe getting two weeks off before the start of the season. Like, like you have less stopping and starting in this current format, in the Winter World Cup idea. And so maybe there's something to that that helps reduce injuries relative to other World Cup years. I couldn't find any data on that. 
But we've talked about a, a ton of the downsides of a Winter World Cup, and I, I generally think that the downsides outweigh the positives by a pretty wide margin, at least as a consumer. But I will be curious if, if folks do a, a, a few more studies on this whole concept. I'll be curious to see if, if that had maybe less of a negative impact or maybe even a positive one. I don't yeah. know. We'll see. One player who has surely been thankful for the Winter World Cup, but kind of the opposite of Haaland because he very much played in it, is Antoine Griezmann, who's come right. back from the World Cup and has been arguably one of the best players in the world. That World Cup, I think there's a good chance we look back at that World Cup as a real turning point in his whole career because it felt like he was kind of fading and then he was one of the best players in that tournament and he's been excellent for Atleti since then. So maybe he, uh, maybe he's quite fond of Qatar. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, and I'm sure there are people who are. That does lead to my final thing, which is less about the season itself. But if we're talking about the impact of a winter World Cup on the global soccer world, I think that it happened at all was a sort of it made, for me, at least it made me come face to face with yeah. just the corruption of FIFA. And I think that is a huge thing that so often we see the World Cup as a global party and it's this wonderful world event and it's people from all over the world coming together. And that was the case this time. But also all of the coverage was, you know, with like half finished stadiums or not half finished stadiums, like half finished buildings and glitzy backgrounds that just reminded us, I think, of the corruption that got it there in the first place, and then also the corruption involved in getting it moved to the winter. Uh, for example, Fox got a uncontested bid for the 2026 World Cup. They basically were given the TV rights to 2026 because of that move to the Winter World Cup. And from what I read, the theory is that uh, Fox would have sued FIFA for basically breach of contract for moving the World Cup. That would have been against their their mm. agreement. And that lawsuit would have forced FIFA to open their books and sort of account for their marketing, account for their budgeting. And they did not want to do that because I think you can fill in the reasons why. And so they give Fox uncontested rights to 2026. They don't have to bid against anybody else. And right there, that that says to me that FIFA was just doing anything they possibly could to make this World Cup happen. And I think, Joe, to your point... I won't have a ton of memories from this World Cup, and I think that's part of it. I think my feeling for large stretches of that one were just like, we're really doing this? Like, okay. Like, it was just, I cared less about the opening ceremonies. I cared less about oh, yeah. the host nation than I ever have before, including Russia. And I, and I think it was just, it was a, a a very public black eye in my mind, one that won't go away for some time. So I think... For that, it was a it was a downer for what should be one of the highlights of the soccer calendar at any given time. Ryan and I cared about the opening ceremony. You did. That is true. And and Mr. Q and all of his <laughs> lovely Q Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman, work. anyone? Yes, yes. Lip syncing Morgan Freeman? Huh? Huh? <laughs> you can't expect him to get down on one knee and uh talk into a microphone at the same time. Uh let's move <laughs> on to a different topic. Uh Joe, not surprisingly, I'm gonna ask you about USL Academies. From Keith Robertson, in your episode about the US Academy system, you briefly brought up the USL. I'm curious what incentive there is for anyone who wants to compete in high level soccer to play in the usl i don't often hear about anyone getting recruited from usl into mls or otherwise yeah so for young players and that, that's what we're looking at here right so keith is asking about the academy system talking about young players i think there are a couple of major reasons to go and, and play in the usl and we're seeing this the first is playing time it's easier to get minutes on a soccer field that's going to be on tv in the united soccer league than it is in Major League Soccer by a pretty wide margin. An academy kid coming through in uh, Houston, let's pick Houston, is going to have a harder time breaking into the first team 
than an academy kid with El Paso Locomotive in Texas. Like it, it's it's not even close. We're seeing this with a number of former MLS Academy players going to the USL. So Kobe Henry, who just moved over to Ligue 1, is a U.S. Youth International, not a player that I'm exceptionally high on, but is a talented young center back. He was with Orlando City's Academy. He was with Inter Miami's Academy. And then he goes to Orange County on the other side of the country in the USL, plays games there, gets sold for six figures with with some sort of thing that could take it up to, to seven figures. And now is with Reims in France. So that's a big move. Jonathan Gomez, another player who's gotten a cap at the U.S. men's national team. He was in FC Dallas's academy and then went from there to Louisville City and goes from Louisville City to Real Sociedad. And that move hasn't worked out very well either. But the, the idea behind them is clear. You go because you want to play. You back yourself and you think, all right, I can get minutes. And we're seeing more kids following this path. Fidel Barajas, who's a name that I don't expect many folks will know, but is a U.S.-Mexico uh, dual national has played with both teams on the U-17 level, is a very young, very talented winger. And Nathan Worth, who is a former New York Red Bulls Academy player, both of those players have gone from the MLS scene, Brass was with the San Jose Earthquakes, to USL. Brass now plays with their Charleston Battery in the USL, and Nathan Worth now, I believe, is playing for Tulsa from the Red Bulls. So both of those players have gone from MLS Academies to USL teams, first teams, over the last year. Players might believe that they can develop more with the first team and they see a path. So why not go, right? That, that's one part of this. The other part is the track record. And I kind of got to it there, but we're starting to see movement from the USL to Europe and to Major League Soccer, which is something that Keith gets at in his question. Like these players aren't just going in USL and staying in USL. They're starting to go. Kobe Henry, Gomez, Joshua Winders reportedly going to Benfica for seven figures from Louisville City. If those players can do it, other young players are, are looking at this and seeing it happening. They're on Twitter. They're on Instagram. Like they're, they're aware of what's going on. If those players can do it, why can't I do it? Right. Like why can't I go and prove it and go out there and, and sort of take a bit more control over what's going on in my future? Because I'll actually be playing. And if I play well, the track record is there that I, I believe that I can get to Europe and that a club's going to want to sell me because they're going to make a, a lot of money relative to their operating expenses. It's kind of a win for both parties for the USL team, for the USL as a whole, and for the player. And, and they are selling players to MLS too. So there is some route in which MLS benefits here. I think they're they're not benefiting in most of these cases. But, you know, mm-hmm. you have a player that goes to the USL and turns into a very good young player, pay $250,000 and sign them to your team, right? We're seeing that Diego Luna did that. He went from the Barca Residency Academy an hour and a half from my house to El Paso Locomotive in the USL Championship and then RSL came in and paid 250 grand for him, which was a record MLS to USL transfer fee. But they saved themselves some trouble. El Paso made some money. The player got some exposure. Like, it kind of worked out for everybody. Brooklyn Reigns has done the same thing. El Paso to Houston. Like, the the track record is starting to develop, not just to Europe, but also to MLS. So playing time, seeing other players go and do it, having a bit more control over your future and and your playing time, all of those things are very real and, and very legitimate, in my mind, factors as to why young players might want to go play in the USL. Two questions for you, Joe. The first, I was having a conversation with some friends of mine about this uh, because one guy who's like less uh, aware of world soccer was asking about the importance of college and you know the college draft and college is so important for basketball and for football. He assumed it was the case for soccer, not so much. And that led basically to these guys who are pretty knowledgeable saying college doesn't really factor. You get a few outliers in MLS, but it's not as big of a deal. And there isn't really that much movement between USL and MLS. Would you agree with that? Do you feel like MLS teams should be doing more to to scout and bring in USL players? Or do you feel like that's already sort of happening? 
I think it is happening, but I also think they should probably be doing more. Now, I, I want to be clear. Like, the, the talent level of the USL Championship, which is the only second division men's pro league, as far as I'm aware, in the U.S. right now, our pyramid is messy and more of a blob than an actual pyramid. But, like, there are good players there. There it's a Rorschach like, test. You see what you see of it, what you want. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. An NASL fan maybe sees things differently. Like you, you see talented players, but they're not like falling out of the cracks, right? They're, I mean, there mm-hmm. aren't. They're not like falling off the cupboard. They're not. There's, there's room for more talent in the USL. So it, it's not like MLS falling teams are missing this huge, hugely golden <laughs> opportunity. Now, I do think they should be scouting. And, and from reports, it seemed like teams in MLS were scouting Josh Winder who was just called up to U.S. Men's National Team camp back in April. Like, he's a, a very highly rated player. They're scouting these kids for sure, like the, the high-level ones they're, they're definitely aware of. I think there's probably room for them to do more. But at the same time, I gave the USL some credit for going out there and, and being an option for some of these young players. The USL should be doing way more of this. Like, as MLS is trying to figure out what on earth MLS Next Pro is and, and how it's going to play a meaningful part in the youth development space and how... Like the pipeline's actually going to work from Academy to Next Pro to MLS and, and what the level is in MLS Next Pro, which is pretty low right now. Like this is the moment. And I think Paul Tenorio has come on this show and talked about that stuff. Like this is the moment for the USL to go hard in the youth academy space and to really go out there and, and try to bring in really good young players and say, hey, look at these guys. We've done it before. You want to wait around for an MLS team to, to get to you? You want to wait around to get minutes? You want to wait around to be sold while they negotiate over transfer fees? Like, no, come come play with us. And we'll get you there. Like, we'll get you there right. in 18 months. We'll get you there in 12 months. And, and we're committed to this project. I think the USL knows that they need to do that. I think they should do more of it, whether or not they will and whether they'll do it successfully, especially now with changes in the, the league office with Paul McDonough coming in, Jake Edwards leaving. Like, there's a lot of moving pieces going on with the USL right now. But I think if they don't capitalize on this moment in time, they will kick themselves like a decade from now. Well, Paul McDonough has no background of creative roster uh, maneuvering, so right. I don't know how to possibly uh, do anything. If you run the league, you can make the rules. <laughs> That's right. <You> see? <laughs> That's right. see? I, I tweeted about Graham this. Graham so forehead. <laughs> for folks who don't know, Jake Edwards was the president of the USL. He left to go, according to, to somebody I talked to, he left to go pursue other career opportunities. So it was a, a pretty... Uh, amicable absence, uh, amicable departure there. And now an Paul McDonough. It was an actual amicable departure as, to, as opposed to Gerhard Struber's. I didn't yeah, want to be as far here as anyway, I know. so it's fine. Yes, as far as I know. <laughs> cool. All and right. so uh, you get now Paul McDonough, who was a former executive at Inter-Miami and Atlanta United, as the new president. And it felt like kind of a weird hire because McDonough's most recent like big soccer thing was getting suspended by MLS for having 87 different DPs with Inter-Miami. And now he's back at a league level, which is not something he's ever done before. He's worked with clubs and worked with agencies and, and done a bit of coaching. But this is new. My, my charitable way of reading the McDonough hire is that the USL knows they need to make a play in the American soccer space. And McDonough knows the American soccer space. And he knows MLS specifically. He knows that better than, than any other area in soccer, I would imagine. So I, I don't know if it's going to work out. I don't know much about Paul McDonough as a, as a person or sort of what his outlook is on doing jobs without breaking rules. Graham, maybe you're right. If he just makes the rules, then it's not a problem. But I think that is one way of reading this hire from the USL is as like a real effort to be involved in this young sort of space that's still growing inside of American soccer. The second question I had, Joe, you you already touched on it, uh, but I wanted to bring it up again. There was a period of time when I think before MLS had really embraced the idea of selling players on uh, and being more of a selling league, uh, which is, I think, something they still resist as a branding statement, but all the same. Uh, you had players like Haji Wright is a prime example. Sure. Haji Wright 
turns down MLS offers to sign with, I believe, the Cosmos, yep. plays there for a year, and with the idea that he can uh, become age-eligible to make a move to Europe, but that there can be an agreement with that league of or with that club of, I am here for a year, and then I am moving, and you all are going to be okay with that. And so I think there is a world in which USL is the league that basically pitches to certain players. Like, look, come here. We're going to give you first-team opportunities yep. right away. Play here for a year. We have connections in Europe. Yep. And then we can get you there. And I think if you are even more embracing of being a selling league and helping players make that jump, you become a development league for Europe, which is kind of where they already are as a development league, being a second division league. I think that would be another way that if they continue to embrace that model and, and pick up those types of players, I think that gives them even greater standing, not just in the United States, but abroad. Yeah, I've also read that transferring a player out of MLS is more complicated mm -hmm. than most leagues. I mean, I'm not in that world. I'm not an agent, but it makes sense, right? Because you're dealing with a, the league body, single entity, the single entity yeah. league body, and then you're dealing with a club and a player. Whereas if you go to USL, who obviously don't have that same structure, you're just dealing with the club and the player. So it would make sense that that would be easier, more straightforward. And as you say, Taylor, um, I found another article that essentially says that while ML MLS clubs generally want to tie down long their their best young players to long-term deals and usl they will sign them to one year two-year contracts with that vow that they will move them on so i think that is very much baked into obviously joe knows more about the subject than i but in researching this it seemed like that that whole concept is baked into their existence as as, as a league yeah agreed i really like usl and i think that they are such an important league for this country i also think that when you have like the little brother, as it were, the little brother has has to work that much harder to get attention, to get the 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 big brother opportunities. And so I think in that way, the, like USL is having to adapt and find creative strategies. And I think that's a league that will continue to gain traction. Maybe that's just uh, wishful thinking. But I appreciated the question and I appreciate any opportunity to talk about USL, uh, specifically USL League One, specifically the Richmond Kickers. But we can save that for another day. Right now, we have one more question. It's bonus Joe content time. Yeah, Bill Graham, yes. Graham, I think I also want your answer to this one. Okay. Uh, from Jacob Court. By a miracle of science, engineering, and money, uh, mostly money, I'm guessing, Joe's floating stadium dream has become a reality. Congratulations, Joe. Thank it's you. going to open in January 2025. Because it was his idea, Joe gets to select the first two teams to play in the stadium. Here, I'll do it this way. Joe gets to select the first two teams. Graham, you get to select any other teams to play this second match in that stadium so joe who's playing in the inaugural opener january 2025 floating stadium uh show showcase i don't know i need a, a, we'll a work on the branding title. later yeah it's, yeah, it's okay. going to be fancier than that i'll have some input it's, inside it's this is going to be branded stadium is back tournament <laughs> right parentheses the lowry classico close parentheses <laughs> open yeah we can we yeah, can okay. build this out a bit mm -hmm. um for folks who don't remember and i don't really remember i think this whole floating stadium thing came from a question that asked basically if we had like a billionaire come in or we came into a bunch of money, like how, how we would go about building a soccer team and, and the stadium that I wanted for my team was a floating stadium high above the sky. I think it's genius. I love the idea. I can't see any way in which it's, it's wrong. I, I want to do a TSS tournament is really what I want to do. The idea was, was birthed on mm. the total soccer show. I would like to do a TSS tournament. So Graham, if you will partner with me for this competition and you can have your own separate answer, but because Taylor's only let me pick two teams and, and Jacob did as well. I'm going to need you to come in with the other two, but I think we can do a Phoenix Rising v, I don't know, let's say Wimbledon in the first game, 
And I think there should be two more teams in the second game, and then they should play the winners in the third game. Graham, can you fill in the other two teams to make this like the TSS tourney? Please help me. Um, so the other two teams would be Sterling Albion and uh, not Manchester United. Manchester you can pick United? either one. That feels like a long Just not Man United. <laughs> either one of the other two. DC United or Richmond, Richmond would work well. Yeah, Richmond I think Kickers. it'd be fun. I think doing. A, I, I, we've talked about doing this before. It'll never happen, right? It's this is uh, pretty hard to pull off. But it might happen in a reality in which I own and operate a floating stadium in January 2025. So I would very much like to see the TSS Tournament Cup Lowry Classico floating, <laughs> floating stadium is back in January of uh, of 25. I love that idea, Joe. I love the spirit of that idea. I the I, <laughs> the reality of you've spent all this money to build a floating it's like the stadium. worst idea ever. It's the <laughs> most then, anticlimactic and concept and of your, all time. Your opening game is Phoenix versus Wimbledon. It should be it should be like USA Mexico or something like it should be like a, a legit yeah. actual or like a game. Classico or something. Right. But no, right. I love I love your answer. It's gonna be it's gonna be an American soccer game for sure. It's not gonna be a European game. But uh, yeah, US US Mexico, US women's national team against England yeah. or something like that. We'll make that happen. Joe, you're a better man than I, because I would have gone with uh Phoenix, Richmond Kickers, Sterling, and then MK Dunn. <laughs> just to ah, really well <laughs> the, the thing is, Taylor, I like yes. Ryan. I like Ryan, so that's why ah, I yes, didn't course, say that. Course, course, that's the, sort of the difference between you and me. Yeah, <laughs> I like annoying Ryan. Does that count? There you go. There it is. Uh, so do I. So you don't vote George and Ryan, I'm sorry. This one got away from me. I apologize. I, I still think though that tournament would be fascinating because I think. Like Phoenix is is probably better than Richmond, but I I don't yeah. know. I, like I, I Bro, probably oh, Wimbledon is the, the best. The next league know. up, come on now. I don't know. Is there that big of a gap? Yeah, there probably is. I I just mean to say that I think I like that it's all sort of like I I would assume Phoenix would finish on top, but maybe it would be Wimbledon. I, right. I don't know who it's would actually going to be. But it would be it would right? be interesting. Like it, yeah. And that's that's why I think these these games would be fun because yeah, it wouldn't necessarily be like. A massive block. We can't have Manchester United. We can't have Charlotte in, the, in this. Although the no, gap Charlotte between Charlotte and, and Phoenix Rising is probably not <laughs> gigantic, but there is a gap for sure. Like there, there's a, a gap here. But with these teams, there would be a, a bit more to play for, I think. Uh, Graham, any, any other thoughts on Joe's floating stadium in the inaugural games? I'm just thinking of how the logistics would work for Sterling Albion. These guys, our players have day jobs and then like it's enough of a it's enough of a stress for them to get to like Stenhouse Muir away on a midweek. And they're looking on the schedule, they're going, Phoenix, Arizona, floating stadium after a day of working in uh, well, some sort of depot or yeah. bricklaying or something. Yeah, I, there isn't a scenario here where Sterling Albion don't finish bottom the f- of the floating stadium invitational. Um, but my suggestion would be, I've always, so I've taken inspiration from the Albuquerque Isotopes, which is a real minor league yes, baseball team, which obviously takes inspiration from the team in the Simpsons. And so I've always wanted the Continental Soccer Association tournament, the open wide for some soccer tournament, <laughs> Portugal versus Mexico, hard kicking, low scoring, uh, all the players. I can't remember the players. It's like Ariaga and uh, uh, Barriaga yeah, and Pazora. Yes. <laughs> yeah, get all those guys and you have Portugal v Mexico. Open Just wide. pass between the two of them for 90 minutes. It, it also stands to reason that like, depending on how poorly constructed the pitch itself was, you would need to be very conservative in your passing because an overhit ball might be flying off the side and then we've got some problems. Although maybe there's just some NYCFC netting to keep everything secure. Graham, <laughs> to your concern about Sterling, I'm, I'm assuming that the floating stadium can float around the world. So, Joe, could we just pick the players up in their various locations? 
Yeah, that's yeah, that's fine. I don't have any issue with that. I mean, I okay. want to protect. I want to protect the sanctity of the floating stadium. Okay. So I don't love the idea of it becoming an Uber ride. But you mm. know, for this special circumstance, I'm okay with it. I'm just we're picture- quickly turning it into like a promotional blimp. I, it's like a shield helicarrier with a football pitch on top. It, it, That's it is kind of a bit like both of those things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with some bleachers. Perfect. That's all we need. All right. Well, I look forward to that inevitable reality. That's certainly going to be happen- happening. But Joe Lowry, thank you for that and all your other answers to today's questions. Right back at you, Taylor. Graham Ruthven, thank you for the same with the exception of the floating stadium one, which I think I think you weren't really on board for. I feel like you were concerned about what might happen to your league form with uh, Sterling Albion. <laughs> There's too much at stake, Taylor. We've just won promotion. We can't have any floating stadiums putting a spanner in the works. It's the most it Scottish <laughs> sentence of all time that was just spoken. Was it? Well, we can't have any five. floating stadiums. Let's go top right. five. Scottish right. attitude is top five there. Well, listeners, we've gone over an hour, which means the nonsense is in full effect. Thank you so much for sticking with us. We greatly appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow for some Champions League reviewing. Talk to you then.